Ask your neighbor on the right if they're ready to be blessed. Ask the neighbor on your left if they're ready to be blessed. Tell the person in front of you that Jesus is going to reveal himself to them. Then grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We know in verse 3, if we read it, we're blessed. If we hear it, we're blessed. If we live it, we're triply blessed. But turn to Revelation chapter 1. Let's stand and let's read from verse 8. Probably one of the clearest pictures, if you're wondering about, have thoughts about Jesus being God. He says here in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, and here's why, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Didn't we just hear something like that? And he he said, what you see, write in a book. So it's what he saw. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And don't miss this. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And so Jesus, this morning, we we welcome you here. Lord, we are so thankful that you're here right with us. That you inhabit the praises of your people. That as we seek to minister unto you, God, you receive it. And then, in turn, you're going to turn back and minister to us. And so, Lord, please, would you speak to us if we have any clutter or anything that's vying for our attention right now that we would not just set it aside, we'd cast it away. And we'd allow your word to settle in deep into our hearts. That it would change us. That, that we would walk away from this place changed people because we have met Jesus with you, more in love with you, more passionate for you, and more understanding of what you want to do in us, but also through us for your kingdom and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So verse 8, who is this? That's kind of the question of all questions. We know it's Jesus. But those who come knocking on your door, the cults, they say, this is God Almighty. And we say, well, duh, Jesus is God. But they don't see it that way. So this is the only time the cults get no more time in the book of Revelation than right here. But look at these titles. If you take a couple notes, and not necessarily those who come at your door preaching another gospel. Second John says, don't even entertain them at the door. But at least you could show them after you ask them, hey, so why don't you tell me what you believe? And then you could say, look, this is what I believe. And you show them in the Bible. And then you say, I'm sorry, I can't keep talking with you. You're bringing a different gospel. But if you take a couple notes, 
this will clearly define who Jesus is. And it will make it desperately, drastically clear that he's God. So underline these four titles here. There's four of them. Alpha and Omega and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Who is, who was, and who is to come. And the Almighty. We're going to define them later. Right now we're just going to kind of do a little infomercial. We know this is Jesus, but not because the letters are red, okay? You can't say, hey, look, this is Jesus right here. It's in red. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you know this, but man put that in. Jesus didn't speak in red letters, and they penned it into the red manuscripts. If we find any of these titles pointing to Jesus, then the cults are 100%, 150% wrong and they're deceived. So remember these four titles here. There's four of them. Now look at verse 11. John heard a voice behind him. It's critical we understand that. Okay, so where's the voice? Behind him saying, then there's two titles here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So if in the front of your Bible you started writing all these titles down, you know, when you get all done, it's going to be real simple. So follow this down. Verse 12 tells us that John turned to see who was speaking. And in verses 13 to 17, Jesus totally describes who? Who? Now, he didn't describe God because the Bible says no man has seen God at any time and live. So who, who is John describing? He's describing Jesus. Now, the cults have a major problem here. And here's why. You should write this in your Bible. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. The Lord God Almighty told Moses, Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Okay, now track with me here, okay? Isn't the Apostle John describing a face in verses 13 to 17? He is. Didn't God just tell Moses that he couldn't see him? He did. See, this is why Jesus is God. John 1.18, 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. Because see, if you look at those titles that are already given, Jesus takes the Alpha and the Omega back what we saw in verse 8. And they, you know, the cults say, that's God. Okay, but John, or, uh, John is giving a description of God. And he's seeing him. That's impossible. Look at verse 17 as you think about, hey, the cults are lying to us. And when I saw him, someone say who John saw? He saw Jesus. I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. Here's another title. I am the first and the last. Look, look back at verse 11. Who used the exact same title, I am the first and the last? The Alpha and the Omega did. So the same per person speaking from verse 8. So again, if you put them all down, you just start drawing lines and connecting them all up. Look at verse 18. As Jesus, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega speaks here. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Well, let me ask you this. When did God Almighty, our Father, die? Yeah, he didn't. But Jesus, who is God the Son, died on the cross. 
Jesus becomes the second person in the Trinity, the three in one who became flesh and walked among us. He died. But being God, death could not hold him down. That's why Jesus said in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Who's I? The speaker, right? Well, that was Jesus. Well, how's that possible? How can Jesus raise himself up? Simple, because he's God. One last stop, Revelation 22, 12. Jesus speaking because, again, the cults are dead wrong. You just have to know that. See, when, by the time we get done, you should be able to know without any doubt at all that Jesus is God Almighty that became flesh so that you could get to heaven. Because if Jesus wouldn't have died, none of us would have made it in. So look here what it says here. And behold, I am coming quickly. Okay, so who's prophesied 300 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament saying he's coming quickly? Say it like you mean it. Jesus is. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the, say it, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Start connecting all the dots. Can you see it? It is so clear here. It's clearly Jesus speak. And look at the title he's using. There's three of them. Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, and the first and the last. The same titles we see in Revelation chapter 1, verses 8, 11, and 17. And if you need a dagger to kind of kill the argument about Jesus not being God, it's in verse 16. Look what it says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches, which should cause us to ask, well, what things? Everything in this book, but also for the last four or five minutes, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. Say it like you mean it. He's God. See, the cults are wrong. See, you don't need to know what they believe. You, Christian, need to know what you believe so you can then show them. Well, I'm going to just go study their thing. What's the point? They know it. And plus, your argument is never going to persuade one of them from turning to Jesus as God Almighty for the saving of their souls. But you showing them that Jesus is God, well, that blows apart all of their theology. And trust me, we should. Because if you got the wrong Jesus, you aren't going to get into heaven. Okay? And if you don't, you're going, well, you're kind of mean. No, I'm not mean. I'm loving. Because the Mormons believe Jesus and God are the devil, and the Jehovah Witnesses believe Jesus is an angel. And I'll tell you what, if an angel died for your sins, are they forgiven? No. no, not at all. God had to die. It had to be a perfect human sacrifice. One last side note here. These verses we just looked at, you can even use the man-made, air-filled, altered truth, defiled Jehovah Witness New World Translation Bible to do this. Because why? Because they forgot to change these. They changed lots of them, but they didn't change these. Now, if you're still unclear, again, just go home, connect them all up. I remember going to school, they used to have the answers on one side or the questions on one side and all the answers on the other side, and you had to like draw a line to the right answer. You ever have any of those? I usually got those at least 50% right. <laughs> you know, it's, okay, so that's how we're going to uh, deal with that. Um, hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, 
the Almighty. Now, there are some amazing titles in here. I mean, look at this first one. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And, and those are Greek words. Alpha meaning the first letter Greek, in the Greek language. Omega is the last. So everything that you can use in word form that speaks of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm it. I'm everything. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I'm the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Beginning and all at the same time, he is the eternal God. You see, the Bible doesn't try and prove the existence of God. It merely assumes that he is. There is nothing in this world that has purpose or meaning without the God of the Bible. And so he's here declaring that he's the beginning and the end, team. He is. See the word the in italics there? That was put in by the translators to make it kind of more palatable for you could understand the English. But you don't need it. Jesus is beginning and end. And he's all of it all at the same time. He'll never learn anything new. Pastor Chuck would say, if you want a kind of an earthly something to try and grasp this, there's the start of the parade, there's the middle of the parade, there's the end of the parade, and you can sit anywhere on the parade route that you want. And all you can see is kind of what's coming, what's present, and there it goes. Well, God's in the blimp, and he sees all of it all at the same time. You know, he can never, ever learn anything new. And see, as we get to this place where we go, Jesus is God, he controls everything, that also means everything that comes into my life, he allows it. He's not sleeping, going, uh, oh, what happened here? No, he's allowing it into our lives to draw us closer to him and to change us so that we become effective witnesses of him. Next, Jesus is proclaimed as the eternal God, like we saw in the same title, who is and who was, and who is to come. That pointed to the Father back in verse 4. But it's the same title that Jesus takes to himself in verse 8, which should go, well, how is that possible? Simple. The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Ghost is God. The three in one. And if you missed last week, it's online. We talked all about the Trinity. Last title Jesus takes upon himself in this unveiling of Jesus Christ is the Almighty. Can you see why the devil wants to keep the whole Christian church out of this book? I mean, it's kind of like, wow. I mean, how? You, I mean, you, you'd have to be dead not to see what's going on here. Jesus is God Almighty. You know, the deity of Jesus Christ is clearly proclaimed in this book. And, and the devil has kept so many people out of the book of Revelation. And so if you haven't started reading it, look, Start reading. You want to grow, you got to read. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, desire the pure milk of the word that you may thereby grow. So you got, if you're going to want to grow, that's, it's there. And then please, you got to pick it up and read it and allow Jesus to jump off every page and infect your heart with his love. It's critical. Look at verse 9. I, John, he's told us he's the author now the third time. Both your brother and companion, I love that, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there is no doubt that John is the author now for the third time. But I like these words here. I really do. Both your brother and your companion. You might want to circle that in your neighbor's Bible. And here's why this is so important. He's not above us. The man who walked with Jesus three plus years, he's level with us. You see, all sinners at the cross 
our level. And the church has got to understand this. Saved and unsaved sinners are on the same playing field today. Amen? Okay, so we should never judge the lost. Ever. Because when I judge them, you know what I'm doing? Ooh, I'm elevating myself. The church has an epidemic of judging lost people. We're called to preach the gospel to them and share the love of Christ with them. I mean, here's the guy, last living apostle. He could have said, well, you know, I met with Jesus for three plus years. He doesn't do that. You know, the Bible says so many times God doesn't show partiality. The church isn't supposed to either. We're not to accept sin, no. We're supposed to love the sinner and tell him the truth. It's critical or they'll be eternally lost. John writes to you and me that he is both our brother and our companion. I like that. Or he's your sister, gals, just so you don't feel left out. He, he is our, both our brother and our companion. Look, look why and in what? In the con- tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. We know by this time, he writes around 96 AD, Rome has been totally destroyed by Nero. Domitian has now taken over, and the church is just being destroyed. The guns are blazing, the Roman guns are blazing, seeking to take it out. And so John is saying, look, I am identifying with these seven churches that he's writing to, saying, look, I know your pain. I understand it. I feel your pain. And he tells us, that he was on the island that is called Patmos, which is a God-forsaken rocky island out in the middle of the Mediterranean by, the, by Ephesus. And he tells us why he is there. Look what it says. I was there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Church history records that Rome sought to burn John in oil. You know, they're going to, let's just throw him in a big pot of oil. But his God turned it into a big greasy hot tub. I mean, so picture with me, you know, please, you've got a big pot of oil, you know, probably olive oil. I don't think they had Crisco then. And they pick John up and they throw him in, and he comes up going, Whoa, this is awesome. Whoa, this is actually good for my skin. It didn't kill him. They couldn't kill him. Why? Because God had a job for him to do. It's the same way he can't, no one's gonna affect you until you're done. And when you're done, you're going home. That's why I never worry about places where I go. You know, as long as I'm not being stupid, and some people say, well, going to South Sudan is kind of stupid. No, it's not. Those people need Jesus. We don't ever have to worry about that. You know, the policemen, they don't have to worry about their job because the day they're going home is the day they're going home. Nobody's going to stop a bullet from hitting them. Not that we want to see that happen, but the reality is, is nobody's going home until it's time to go home. And so here he is. He's on this island called Patmos. He's been banished along with a bunch of other prisoners. And it's easy for me to understand why John doesn't write this book here. If you go look at the place, all it is is this, this, full, this rocky crag out. There's nothing on it. So no doubt he had, he, he had a hard enough time just trying to survive. But here he is. He's not a lawbreaker, though. Look what it says. He's there for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he wouldn't have said it, he wouldn't have got there. Do you got that? Can you connect the points here, church? We got some issues here in the church today. 
If he wouldn't have been proclaiming the gospel, he wouldn't have got cast to the island. But he's our brother and our companion. You see, he was faithful to follow the great command of Jesus to go out and preach the, preach the gospel. If you look at every word that Jesus says after the resurrection, every single one of them says, go out and preach, go out and preach, go out, go, 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 go. But today, you know what the church has become? Come, 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 come. Now we're supposed to go, 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 go. There are good works that God has already prepared in advance for you to walk in. They're out there going, hey, excuse me, can you tell me how to be saved? When we go out at night, 99% of the young people around here believe they're going to heaven. And when you ask them, hey, how are you getting there? They go, well, I, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Well, church, that's us. We have the answers. John was faithful to go out and preach the gospel. And in doing so, he got banished on this island. So how are we doing here, team? How are we doing with this? John, our brother and companion, was exiled to a hellhole for obeying Jesus' command to preach the gospel to all nations, those close and those across the sea. See, I believe one of the most, well, not the most, another great experience that you can have in your life is preaching the gospel. It is. You know, the devil doesn't want people to experience Jesus. Oh, don't read the book of Revelation. It's hard to understand. You can't understand it. You know, it's mystic. It's all this. So he keeps them out of it. But the devil has done the same thing really to the church. Don't preach the gospel. Don't preach the gospel. Don't preach the gospel. See, this world is never going to change if people don't start preaching the gospel. The government's never going to change it. Amen? Really? You think the government's going to change <laughs> our world? You have to be uncorrupted to be something here we got to be preaching the gospel. And, and this isn't a one-time event. This is a lifetime. And think about this, church. You're in, but you were out. And if Jesus hadn't come after you, you'd still be on the outside. Wouldn't you want someone to come to you and share with you so you wouldn't be lost for eternity into a devil's hell? Because that's going to happen when the return of Christ comes. The rapture of the church takes place. Seven years of literally God pouring his wrath out on this earth. Yeah, there'll be some who are believers. But if you go read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, those that have heard, God's going to give them an evil spirit and a lie because they didn't receive the truth. Today's the day of salvation. God wants to work today. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Our brother John is on the island for doing his part. Now it's our, our time. It's our time, team. Because if we don't do it, who will? The church doesn't preach the gospel, who will? Oh, I know, because I've read ahead. Revelation 14, an angel will go out and preach the gospel to everybody left on the earth. Before we move on, circle the word was in the middle of verse 9. It tells me that John saw this entire book on Patmos, but when he wrote it all down, he was not there. 
I was on that island. I'm not, I am not there now as I'm writing it down. History tells us John was in Ephesus when he wrote it. And whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But I can definitely tell you he wasn't on the island when he wrote it. He was definitely on the island when he saw it. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10. Not, not spirit-filled, but John was transported by the spirit into the world of prophetic vision where he was allowed to not only witness Jesus and the state of the church, but also a future time of terrible events in HD, 3D, surround sound color. And he writes it here. Now, I don't know if it's HD, 3D stuff, but he was there. And this is what he heard, and this is what he saw as he writes here. And I heard behind me a loud voice. Might want to circle that word, behind. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. You know, this is not, you know, trumpet talk. Jesus is not talking like a trumpet. No, it was as of a trumpet. So it was clear it was loud. It meant something. It was authoritative like we see in the Old Testament. The saints would blow a trumpet and it would mean to advance or to gather or to pull back or to settle. The trumpets meant something. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, all of it all at the same time. Different titles of Jesus, same meanings. And what you see, John, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we talked about why these seven, when there were so many others one, other ones that they could have included. We talked about it last week. If you missed it, grab it online. Then I turned, okay? He heard behind him, Circle the word turned. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I would circle that. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Massively loud, amen. I mean, do you see what's happening here? I heard behind me one saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So I turned to see who it was. And I saw. You know, Jesus isn't playing peekaboo. Hide from John, you know. As John turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. I mean, wow, amazing. What is that? Don't go read a book on it, please. All you got to do is look at verse 20. The seven lampstands, Jesus explains it to us. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches or the complete church. Seven means complete. So, you know, someone says, well, you know, let me tell you what these seven lampstands are. They're making stuff up. It's right here. So I love this picture. As John turned, he saw the complete church. Seven means complete perfection. Not perfect, but whole or complete. And as John turned, he saw the whole church represented by the seven golden lampstands. And as he turns, he saw in the midst of the whole church, one like the Son of Man. Amen. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow, we're so Pentecostal here. Amen. <laughs> I mean, do you see this? This is amazing. And this has got to be happening here. We need, just need to shut down. If Jesus is not in the center, in the middle of everything we do, 
We have become church number seven, the church of the Laodiceans, who have pushed Jesus out because of all of our whatever, all of our worldly, earthly, manly stuff, and Jesus is outside the door knocking patiently, waiting for someone to open the door and invite him in. They never did. That church does not exist today. But he's here. And as we gather in his name, he's right here. Jesus said that in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Well, how do we know that's true? Well, right here. As we peer into heaven, we see what Jesus said while on this earth, that he is in our midst. And there he is. He is right dead center of the believers. Now, as John keeps looking, no doubt he's tripping out. He says, and as I saw one like the Son of Man. You see, Jesus had to become man to save his team. And as the God-man, 100% fully God, 100% fully man, he tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet did not sin. And so as he experienced everything as a man, he can sympathize with you and I. Okay, it's, it's important for that to happen. And that's why we as followers of Jesus Christ can come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need because Jesus experienced all of that. If you go to Daniel 7, there's a picture of God the Father seated on the throne and then we see one standing like the Son of Man. God becoming man is the heart of the gospel. It is. I mean, that screams that God loves the church. It screams that God loves people. You know, we know God demonstrates his own love for us, that, that, that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But here it is. We see him. And we want to share it. You know, look people in the eye and tell them, you know what, Jesus, who is God, became man and took all of your sin away so that your sin could be washed away. There's people who are so sin. Okay, there's two groups of people. There's people who are sinners and there's self-righteous religious people. We can't minister really to those. We can minister here. We can minister to sinners who are weighed down. Hey, Jesus will take all of your sin away because he died for, it on, for you on the cross. You see, if Jesus is not God, he couldn't do anything. And see, this is why all the religions and all the cults are wrong as we draw a line in the sand. Because, see, we, we know Jesus is God. He says that about himself. But all of the other religions, they change Jesus into something else. An enlightened master, a good teacher, a prophet, a guru, an angel, the devil's brother. But as soon as you do that, well, all of a sudden, you don't have one that could die for your sins. And I like the picture that Jesus retained his humanity in heaven. I like that. You know, this is the, probably the single most greatest truth that when we are absent from this aching, tired, disease-filled, tumor-growing, virus-stricken, dead body, that we will be just like our Jesus in our heavenly body. Because there he is. We get a picture of him. We get to see it. Now, this is an amazing description that John gives us here. At least... This way, when we get to heaven, 
We don't have to go, hey, excuse me, um, can you tell me who that person is over there, like a son of man? I'm not really sure who that is. Yeah, man, Revelation chapter 1, that's Jesus. So we should know that. Look how John describes Jesus here. One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Kingly clothes here. You know, he came as a commoner. Remember, at his arrest, Judas had to kiss him so that they could know who he was. The Bible says he didn't have any features that he stood out amongst other people. But here, he rules and reigns as the conquering king of kings. Verse 14, we see the purity of Jesus. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. You know, when you get to heaven, you're not going to go, hey, John, Jesus doesn't have wool and snow on his head. No, it says, was like, okay? Those are critical. We see that. But what we see here is we see the purity of Jesus, our Savior, our God. Remember what Pilate says about Jesus just before he sells him down the river? He said this, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him, no fault in this man at all. You're right, Pilate, there wasn't any fault. Because Jesus became the pure, undefiled God-man that died in our place, that he might make all of us white as snow. White bead, gospel bracelet. White as snow, Isaiah chapter 1 Verse 18, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, the Lord says, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I'll make them wool. I mean, that's the purity of God and what he does in our life. His authority right here at the last part of verse 14, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. This is all authority of God. This is God authority here. As his eyes, feet, voice, mouth, and a hand that holds the seven stars. And that would be the right hand, the hand of authority, describing his authority. And this is a totally different view of Jesus who walked on the earth as the coming Messiah, you know, came little meek and mild Jesus. But here... He's the reigning Messiah. He's all authority. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other. And look, look what it says here. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything we do, team. Everything. It can cut right through everything. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Wow, that sounds familiar. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. He sees everything. He knows everything, even before we speak it. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Why? Because he has these eyes like a flame of fire. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to give an account. I think the single greatest thing that could happen in the life of the church today is that the fear of God would be, well, put back in its proper place. See, the grace of God and the fear of God are so critical in the life of the church. If you, do, if you don't believe me, go home. Fire up fear of God in your Bible program. You're going to be shocked. You need them both. Because the fear of God is going to keep me moving, doing what God's calling me to do. And the, and the grace of God is going to keep drawing me to him. You know, you get lazy, hey, I need to be out there doing what God's called me to do because I'm going to stand before him one day and give an accounting of my life. I mean, that should do something in our life, right? Like, 
Like a little fear, you're going to stand before God Almighty and give an accounting of your life? No. James says faith without works is dead. There's got to be something there. It's critical. His feet as the fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. It speaks of a coming judgment. Feet, there's something moving. It's coming. And brass speaks of judgment all the way through the Old Testament. For any who doubt Jesus' authority in the church, look what he has in his right hand. Again, we don't need a book to figure out what this is. Fast forward to the end of this chapter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand are the angels of the seven churches. Jesus is holding that. And there's two thoughts on who these angels are. The Greek word for angels is angelos, and it means messenger. Some believe they're pastors of the church. Others believe the seven angels are the seven angels we see, you know, popping in and out of the book of Revelation. And they hold this view because of Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And so which answer is right? I'm not sure anymore. I might know next week, but I'm sure of this. Jesus is holding the seven angels in his right hand of authority. And his countenance was like the sun shining its strength. I mean, could you imagine what that looks like? You know, there's Jesus, and it's like the sun shining in its full strength. If you need to kind of figure out what that means, go outside when there's no clouds and look up at the sun. What do you see? Nothing but, G- but that sun. Everything else is pushed aside. If you were to go out there and look at the sun, and John's saying, look, when I saw Jesus, man, every, there, notice everything was moved away. All I could see was him. Jesus has got to be the center of everything you and I do. He's got to be the center of who we are with his countenance shining like the sun in its strength. In each one of our hearts, Jesus must be the center, central figure for our lives or we're in trouble. In marriage, Jesus must be the centrality of the marriage or it's in trouble. And in God's house, Jesus must be the centrality of the church or you have no church. You just have a bunch of people getting together. I mean, think about this. When the cults gather, is Jesus present? No, he's not. But they're singing. They're praying. He's got to be here. And the reason we know this is true is because when you look up into heaven, Jesus is the centrality of all of heaven, team. And there is John. Man, he is staring at one whose countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I wonder what that would be like. I can tell you this. John, Josh, Daisy, and Brian, when they entered into heaven, our young people, boom. They saw him. And when I saw him, look what it says in verse 17. I fell at his feet as dead, as John is now worshiping his King Jesus. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. So we pause for just a moment. Because John has a habit of falling down as he sees and interacts with this whole end time scene. If you fast forward to chapter 22, verse 8, this is what it says. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. So here... The angel said, look, man, don't worship me. But back in chapter 1, 
That person doesn't say that. Thus, there can only come to one conclusion here, that Jesus is God, receiving the worship of man. And when I saw him, and I love this picture, I fell at his feet as dead. Why? Because of the fear of God. You know, wow, boom. But the grace of God, he laid his right hand on me. That hand of power, that hand of authority. He comes and he gently lays it on John's head or on his shoulder and says to me, do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't say, hey man, get up man, what are you worshiping me for? No, he doesn't. He's the object of all worship. That's why we gather at 10 o'clock. <laughs> at 10 o'clock, we gather and worship. And see, this is why the unveiling of Jesus Christ is so evident here. As Jesus said to John, I am the first and I am the last. Another pause. We're going to the Old Testament. Go to the book of Isaiah. Go, you know, turn back, find the Proverbs, Psalms. It'll be the next big book to your right. I am the first and the last. Where do we find language like that? Hey, go home, fire up your Bible program and type in first and last and hit enter. And then you're going to scroll down. There's 31 of them to pick from. You're going to get to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. And this is how it reads. Remember who said this? Jesus said this. He said, I am the first and the last. In Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, and that's capital L, capital R. That means Yahweh Almighty. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. Chapter 44, verse 6, same book. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord God Almighty of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no, say it, God. I'm, okay, look, that's all on us now, okay? We know there is no other God but this one. Because if this isn't true, I don't know why you're here. <laughs> We're all wasting our time if this isn't true. So we not only know the true God, but he possesses us. He lives in us. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. We're called. Nobody comes to the Father unless they're called. I am he, and I am the first, and I am also the last. Back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Any confusion as to who the one speaking in Revelation 1, 17 is? It's God. It's God Almighty. It's the God of the Bible. See, we don't have to try and figure out how this whole Trinity thing works. And yet, I don't know really what's so hard about it. There's, God's the Father, and, God, and it's like, hey, look, in order for man to be saved, you know, God the Son's going to have to come to this earth and die so that they can be saved, and then the Holy Spirit's going to be present in our, in our lives and guiding us and directing us. Three different functions, one God. Look what Jesus says here. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Now, that is not a signing off like in Jesus' name, amen. Done praying, God. You don't have punctuation mark like, yes, so be it. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Tell your neighbor Jesus has the keys of Hades and death. The devil has no keys. Can we see that? 
The devil doesn't rule hell. He doesn't rule this earth. The devil has nothing unless the Lord God gives him something. So when something's happening in your life, yeah, God's allowing that because he wants to change you. He wants to change me. When this is all said and done and the devil is cast in the lake of fire, he is not ruling there. The Bible will tell us he is tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't give him too much credit. Yes, there's a spiritual battle we're in. So pray like crazy. Okay, tell your neighbor, wake up. Tell your other one, wake up. You don't want to miss verse 19. You miss this, you'll never understand this book. You get this, you have a great opportunity to understand. Write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. In order to understand this book, you need a key. So Jesus gives it straight to John so it can't get messed up because it is critical to, to discover what is happening in this book. There are three different time zones in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, past tense. Write the, thing, write the things which are, present tense, and write the things which will take place after this, future tense. And all of that will help, but we need one more piece of information. The past tense things which we've just seen is chapter one of this book. Because those were the things he, he, he saw as Jesus speaks to him. The present tense things is chapters two and three, God's church. It's still here, it's still present. And the future things which will take place after this is chapters 4 to 22. You get this, you got this, you can go home and you can understand parts of it. And then understand it's written like Genesis 1 and 2. God does all of the, the whole creation, chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 he goes back and details out parts of chapter 1. The book of Revelation is written the same way. There'll be a big time span, and then there's detail, detail, detail. Big time span, detail, detail, detail. Big time span. And, and as you go looking for it, you can understand this. It is. God didn't write it so we couldn't get it. He wrote it so that Jesus would be unveiled to us so we could get it. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, which you saw are, well, they're not any mysteries anymore because we already talked about it. If you're going, no, I didn't hear that. Well, you might have been taking a power nap, but that's okay. Let me ask you this. Who would like Jesus to show them something like what John saw in chapter one tonight? Show of hands. Okay. A lot of people. I mean, wouldn't all of God's kids like this personal tour of heaven from their Lord? Well, the good news is you can. You can. But you gotta go home and you gotta turn off your idol. That may be in your pocket. I don't have time. Yeah, you do. Set the phone down. You just gain two, three hours a day. Turn the TV or the computer off or the video game off. You just gain six or seven hours a day. Remember, we, there's 60 hours a week after we work and sleep and all that. 60 hours a week that we can invest in something. I'll give you an extra 20 to do whatever. Now you got 40. I'll give you another 10 because, well, I don't know, just because I'm a nice guy. Now you have 30 hours a week. It goes somewhere, and it goes into our idols. But you set all that aside, and you climb up in some comfy chair where it's just you and your Bible. Not a study Bible where it's words of men, but just you and your Bible. And you open up your heart as you open your Bible. But before you start to read, ask the Lord. Remember, you receive not because you ask not. So ask Jesus to give you understanding so you can understand what's going on and wisdom what it means, how it plays out. 
And then ask Jesus to speak to your heart. And if you're not living in sin and Jesus is the Lord of your life, he will. He will. I mean, if we're, to, if we're to deny, if Jesus says, look, you want to be a disciple? Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Well, how can we follow him if we can't see him? Oh, no, we can't. He's here. He wants us to follow him. He died so we could follow him. He gave his life so we could follow him. But you've got to turn off the idol and you've got to give him an opportunity. You've got to give him some time as you quiet yourself before the reigning king of kings and say the same thing that Eli told little Samuel when God was calling him. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And God will speak. It'll be awesome. Father, we're thankful that you've kept this and you've preserved it and it's here and we have the freedom